Today is Friday, August 25th, 2017. Time for episode 22 of the Barnhart Podcast. This is the fourth Financial Friday podcast. And while we've done a lot more of the churchy episodes, the Financial Fridays are generating a lot more email, and we've got some good ones to discuss in this podcast. As Anne has mentioned in previous Financial Fridays, as well as the churchy episodes, that the commonly pushed need to go to college is a false premise. It doesn't take a large dose of the red pill to realize that college these days is more of a brainwashing and enslavement scheme meant to form obedient, debt-paying slaves who are easy to control for fear of losing their ability to service their massive loans. Which leads to uh, a common question coming in, what are good trades to learn rather than going to college? It's an excellent question, and we could we could talk and talk and talk about this for for the entire hour. Um, the, I guess the first thing that I would say is that y- young people today need to be focused on learning an actual physical trade in which they can physically make something, service something, grow something, produce something. The economy in the United States has been transformed over the last, intentionally, I believe, over the, certainly over the 20th century, but especially over the last 50 years or so, into it's moved away from a production economy into a service-based economy. Think about all the people you know, think about their jobs, and think about how, um, I'm struggling to think of a word here, how intangible their jobs are. Um, Customer service, you know, things like that. Things that are just completely intangible, not producing anything. Um, Bureaucracy, middle management. I wrote a piece several years ago about the defense industry. In the United States, this massive, massive, huge industry employing all of these people, putting all of these people to work, in quotes, populating swaths of suburban America. And my reference point on this, what I was thinking of, is because I lived in Denver at the time. And so you've got all these defense contractors. You've got Northrop Grumman. You've got, you know, McDonnell Douglas. Douglas. You have all these aerospace and defense contractors And there's just thousands and thousands of people who are employed in completely unnecessary, redundant middle management. And these these paradigms and structures, I'm utterly convinced, have been set up intentionally by the government as a form of basically middle class welfare. So you have a, a defense a, a defense company who's producing something, you know, or producing a, a, an air a fighter jet or something like that, anything. And I, I had it. I had I was sat down and I had it explained to me that there are at least at least ten levels of completely totally unnecessary middle management that exist in these structures and. The only reason that these these jobs exist is to effectively provide low six figure jobs, um, a, a form of of suburban middle class welfare from the government. It's it's you know the government tells the contractors this is how you need to have your your corporate structure set up. You know, price all of this into the bids on these contracts, price everything in that you're going to be paying at least 10 levels of low six figure salaries for people who are just doing absolutely nothing of any of any. They're not contributing to the process in any way. It's just paper shuffling and meetings. And, you know, um, if you've ever seen the movie, what's the funny movie? Is it called Office Space? Yes. Office Space. Yeah. Office Space. That's a documentary. it's it's a it's a it's a quasi documentary absolutely and and that's what's going on there and so you know we think about it, it people think well you know if you get up into where you're in a six figure type level career or position that must be good and that must be secure and i i would hasten to remind people that no it most certainly is not if you're talking about these completely unnecessary middle class suburban welfare project type career paths, if you're not doing something that is genuinely contributing or producing something, um, then it seems to me that it's pretty clear that if there is 
war, societal collapse, et cetera, et cetera. The first thing that's going to go are all of these stupid positions that exist that don't that don't produce or have any legitimate value that are just government welfare programs. So I would avoid anything like that, like the plague. Now, having said that, if you want to look specifically at defense, aerospace, any of that stuff, there are people in there who have genuine skill sets and are genuinely valuable. And those are the mathematicians and the physicists. So if you're a young person and you're super smart in that capacity and you have um, you have a talent and and uh an ability to do mathematics and physics on a high level, sure, go ahead and pursue that, even though it's it's on paper and it's theoretical, but it, it has application in the sense that we are going to always need mathematicians and physicists and 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 people like this who who have the genuine goods, not just paper pushers in middle management. Avoid all of that like the plague. That's what I'd say to a young person. Um, next down the line, I have a whole list of notes here. Well, it, it almost sounds like a really good rule of thumb for people in professional services, whether you're a physicist, accountant, uh, advanced mathematician to ask in your job interview, how many levels of management will there be between me and the CEO and use that yeah. as an inverse, um, inverse way of calculating how logical the, the structure of this company is. Exactly. And how risky it is. Each additional level of redundant mental management is truly inherently a level of risk in that corporate culture. So, you know, search for a place where there's only four levels between the mathematician and the CEO instead of something like um, a Lockheed Martin or something where there will be a, maybe a dozen, maybe more by this point, because you know they just have to keep adding and adding and adding. Well, even um, even Lockmart for the big contracts they do, they're contract they're subcontracting out to the smaller startups that are, are agile and smart and can actually sure. uh, deliver things. So those ten layers of middle management probably are are prob probably managing all the subcontractors. They're not actually doing anything. Exactly. There there are some they do have some mathematics mathematicians and physicists in house, but you're absolutely right. They, they are subcontracting out. I think it would be it would be more secure and it's probably even more lucrative because the the small companies, they're the ones who are as long as we're talking about um, culture, society, the economy remaining the way it is, they're the ones who are you're gonna get things like buyouts and um, um, stock options and, th and and things like that if you still want to engage all of that you know, my position on the financial markets, but just saying everything held constant, normal world as it has been up a, for the last several decades, you have a better chance of getting in and getting actually a more lucrative and potentially more beneficial compensation package. Um, from here, um, let's move into IT. And I'm going to defer to you, super nerd, on this. The, what I put down in my notes and what I've been told and the way the way I've kind of viewed the whole IT sector is that the gaming side, first of all, it's <laughs> it's it's producing a product that is designed to just make people sit around and waste time. And now, as we're seeing, um, the gaming side is kind of morphing into virtual reality with obviously with pornography being a major player in all of this. So it, it, IT certainly is going to be something that is going to be necessary and useful. However, what I would say is that a young person getting into IT, I would recommend that they stay away from the gaming side and learn the more, um, the more base concepts. And even uh, Super Nerd and I were, were visiting before we started the, uh, the recording, um, Learn how to do the old school stuff, like how to actually make circuit boards and things like that, so that if we do have to go back and start from scratch again, that there will be guys around who know how to go old school on this stuff. And then I think that the learning curve and the production curve, if we had to, if we were all suddenly thrown back 30 years in the past and we're back at the level of, you know, a Commodore 64 or something like that that we would be able to then rebuild the technology and rebuild the infrastructure, but we're going to have to have guys who have that old school competence. And I'll let you riff on IT now, super nerd, since you are, in fact, a super nerd. 
Well, I'm, and I'm a computer programmer as well. I mean, I, I can build computers from completed circuit boards, but in terms of being able to um, take a blank circuit board and build something from from scratch, I that is not my my area. That's more uh, electrical engineering. That's that's something where you probably do need to go to extensive, you know, probably college because they're not there. There aren't Votech colleges or Votech programs to train you to become an Intel engineer to to be able to make a CPU to build a motherboard from pieces and parts. Uh, that that will be a very rare skill. And especially if we if we end up in a situation where we lose electricity, I'm not even sure how useful a Babbage engine based on water power is gonna gonna be. I think falling back to something more practical like uh, knowing how to fell a tree with an axe would probably be a more useful skill, and and something like that. But in terms of as long as we have the ability around to have computers, um, knowing how to build your own computer from parts, uh, and of course the parts are pretty pretty big and complete somewhat in their own sense. So for example, being able to uh, articulate what's the difference between one type of motherboard and the other. What is the advantage from between one CPU and another? What is the diff- what, what are the differences between a um, I call them spinning rust, but the old traditional hard drives and a solid state hard drive? What's the difference? Spinning between a- rust. That's well, funny. because it's it's um <laughs> it's some kind of uh, aluminum oxide or something. that's on the on the disc. So chemically speaking, it really is rust. It really uh, is rust. Yeah, yeah. It, they just they just align these these um, metal bits uh, ele- electromagnetically. So yeah, it's spinning rust. It's really what it is, as as opposed to uh, solid state hard drives. And then of course there's all kinds of different types of solid state hard drives. But if you can uh, build a computer and know why you're selecting certain components and why one is is better than the other, if you get into um, the IT industry as a programmer, for example, knowing why uh, solid state drives are faster and how how the, the the computer subsystems can be optimized for speed for certain types of operations that certainly will help but in terms of being able to uh, get into the industry this is something where absolutely you do not need to go to college even to be a, a computer programmer you do not need to go to college in fact some of the, uh, the ivy league schools uh, stanford and some of the other ones they're putting their entire computer science curriculum online for free now your ability to understand this might might um, be a little more might might be challenging if you're not there to be able to have a, a back and forth with uh, a professor. But just find your your local computer programmer. Computer science people love to talk about what they do. Now, how, whether or not they're any good at explaining what they know is a completely different question. But usually, oh, yes. they they love to explain uh, what they do. They that's why they're they're in this field. They love it. And so, if you have genuine interest uh, in learning this. Uh, it, you can definitely start from scratch on, on this stuff. I still maintain, though, if you want to be a computer programmer, which I don't necessarily say this is the end-all, be-all just because I do it, the best preparation for, for computer science is Latin and philosophy because the concepts you're going to learn, you know, the ability to work with other languages, formal uh, grammar structures, and, and uh, entity relationships and philosophy, these, these are concepts that apply almost one-to-one directly when you get into computer science. And when I started learning uh, computer science and learning how to program and learning how to deal with databases, I was stunned at how the the, 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 the linguistic skills that I learned in Latin and Spanish in high school made it so much easier to start learning uh, computer languages. It's, it's, you know, computer languages are, are, are just highly formal ways of, of speaking to a machine. And just remembering this thing is, is uh, almost maliciously obedient. It will do exactly what you tell it to, even if you told it to do something illogical. And then, of course, philosophy learning how to how to construct truth tables and, and how entities relate to one another. I found that being almost word for word some of these concepts coming up in, in database theory and database design. So if you want to if you want to have the door wide open for computer science, study Latin, study philosophy, and there are homeschool curricula out there for that and some really good ones at that. But IT in general, I would say for somebody who doesn't go to college, the hard part's going to be getting into the field to begin with. And this is where finding somebody who's willing to um, what's the word uh, to be um, mentor mentor well mentorship's one of it I was going to say uh, an apprenticeship um, those yeah, those are yeah. unfortunately very rare because most most uh, shops where you're you're building pro- products uh, build, building programs you don't really have time to mentor somebody we, we you want somebody who is skilled and can get in and write code right away and we don't really want to you know waste billable hours training somebody so that being able to get in is kind of difficult. Um, Isn't that an interesting point, though? Because I think the fact that there is no longer um, apprenticeship in any meaningful way, not even between, say, for example, fathers and sons. Um, One of the things, you know, when I was in the cattle business that we 
we always hastened to remind people of is not to fall for the contemporary cultural paradigm where, you know, you have these children and you absolutely refuse to let them participate in anything that you're doing um, on the farm or the ranch. It, It should be exactly the opposite. You should have your children within reason. I mean, obviously keep them safe and and don't let them do anything that's going to put them in physical harm. Um, but the kids should be out there working with you, learning, learning the skill set, being put, being put genuinely to work from a very early age. The old timer who taught me cattle marketing, marketing and taught me the cattle business was put to work genuinely at the age of four. And and you know that this contemporary culture with its satanic. Um, infiltration and and um, attempts to destroy it has now cast having your children at your side as as de facto little apprentices learning skill sets from you know in this incredibly valuable time period when they are just little sponges that absorb everything and just can learn have a capacity for learning that is completely unmatched for the rest of their lives just by the way God has engineered human beings. Little kids just soak everything up. The fact that that the culture now says that you are abusing your children by having them come out and work with you, that children should be kept completely away from work, it should be completely segregated, sit the children in front of the tabernacle of Satan, the television, and let them be indoctrinated with the Marxism and the Freemasonry and the, and the sodomy and all of that, don't you dare teach your children how to do anything because, why? Because the state wants them to themselves. The state wants your children completely. They want to have a completely clean slate, which they can then, you know, so that these kids can be completely and totally indoctrinated with this this Freemasonic Marxist sex pervert paradigm, and there will be nothing in the children's minds, nothing at all, that will compete against that and say, well, wait, this is illogical. Well, wait, this doesn't make any sense. And so that's why people have been trained to keep their kids completely away from them in terms of their jobs. Um, you should be taking your kids to work. You should be talking to them about what you do. Um, you should be showing them things. You should be teaching them skills. And the more the more hands-on, the better, it seems to me. Um, and so, yeah, apprenticeship was the way that healthy economies and healthy societies operated. A young man was put into apprenticeship when he was, well, what, when would they start apprenticeships? 10, 11, 12 years old. I was say early teens if, at the latest. Or, yeah, I, at the latest. I'm, I'm thinking more, you know, 10, 11, 12 is when a young man would go into a workshop. He would be put into a workshop environment and he was the apprentice. And then by the time he was 18 years old, he was, he was basically an independent skilled craftsman. He could earn a living. He could get married, et cetera, et cetera, you know. And so, but no, what do we have to do now? We have to have these children in these decrepit public schools where they are being contra-educated, propagandized, being turned into diabolical narcissists. Then we have to put them into the university system, which is even worse, which puts them into financial slavery effectively to the state through the student loan paradigm for the rest of their life. They come out of that and they are helpless and incompetent human beings, can't feed themselves, have no have no genuine skills, um, you know, majors like women's studies. And I don't know, what are some other majors? Uh, English literature. Mar- <laughs> it, it, well, I mean, the, I don't, I don't want to say I, that that's, nobody that's totally should study literature. That's totally tongue in cheek. Um, what are what are some of the other horrible majors? Um, like marketing. What what what's marketing? What's psychology? What the hell skill set does a person coming out? He, here's here's the way I would characterize it. I'm going to think back on my days at at, at K State, and I'm going to ask myself, what were all of those football players? What were their majors? Physical education. Uh, communications, um, marketing, psychology, that tells you right there, okay, you've got a group of young men whose IQs are in the 80s. They have no business whatsoever being in a university, none. They're there because they are, um, 
They are integrated into the NFL and NBA farm teams, the minor league NFL and NBA farm teams that are basically generating the lion's share of the revenue for these land-grant universities and also non-land-grant universities, okay? That, that's, that's the truth. That's the truth. They shouldn't be anywhere near a university. They have no business. They're, these are people who should be doing low-skill um, low positions, janitorial work, et cetera, et cetera. They have no business in a university. All right, you, you've got to get these people through, and, and that's all BS anyway, too. They, the football players would go to class like either the first or the first two class sessions, and you'd see them sitting there, and then you'd never see them again. And then they end up getting a C in the class. Well, it, it became very, very clear very, very quickly that it was it's all a fraud. It's all a racket. All right, what majors do they put these people in? Look at those majors, and that is something that you shouldn't touch with a, with a 10-foot pole. Because it has no meaning. Communications, marketing, psychology, it has no meaning. Okay? So don't waste your time getting a degree in something like this. Because that's just, all it's doing is pumping you into this economy, um, this economy where people are doing things that don't actually produce anything. Um, so avoid that like the plague. Apprenticeship is where it's at. And if, if you can get a young man or a young woman, for that matter, into something which is basically an apprenticeship in which they are working side by side with some sort of a, a master craftsman or a programmer or just anything where they're learning how to physically do something. Man, that's the way to go. Or if a, a, another uh, possibility would be like a two-year program for plumbing, um, electrical engineering, you know, l literally learning to run electricity in buildings and so forth. Um, I've got a whole list, welding, machining, masonry, anything like that, any sort of like a, what do they call those? An associate certificate or something like that. You're actually learning to do something. You got a little piece of paper. And then what that is going to enable you to do is maybe get into a position where you're working side by side as a de facto apprentice to a master craftsman, a master builder, someone who knows what they're doing and can pass along some genuine, useful, productive information and skill set to you. Um, that's, Inter internship that's, is the, the term I was looking for earlier. Oh, internship. That's that um, that reeks of the middle management type thing, you know? I mean, yeah, there's some internships that are useful, but also <laughs> the more the more you're around people who are at up, upper levels of of corporate culture and so forth, you hear the interns referred to almost universally as slave labor. They're not going to have you doing if you're an intern. It's it's very it's highly unlikely that you're going to be tasked with doing anything of any, um, of any genuine importance, you're going to end up doing the projects that they don't want to do. It depends upon what, what kind of, what kind of skill set you're looking at. If, if it's internship for business, uh, administration, yes, you're going to be doing the, the lowest totem pole level schlep jobs that, that nobody else wants to do. If you yeah. are a computer science intern, for example, uh, you know, Microsoft, for example, they hire a lot of, uh, interns out of, and they, they hire them, they get paid, uh, from, hmm. Ivy League schools from the, from the top computer science programs, and these these kids are writing some of some core pieces of, of technology. There's a software company out of New York that uh, they make bug tracking software and some other things, and they have a very complex piece of code uh, called called a cross language compiler that was written by an intern one summer. And uh, so it, it really depends upon what trade you're working in as as in terms of what interns are going to do. Uh, some of it can be actually significant. Some of it could be you were just here for the summer and not really doing much of anything. It re really reminds me when I was in the Navy, the the midshipmen would come out for two weeks, whether they were Naval Academy or ROTC. I always got the impression they were just taking up space for two weeks, so they had something to put on their uh, military professional resume. They they didn't really do a whole lot as far as I was concerned. But then again, maybe that was just the nature of the ship I was on. I knew some of these guys were heading on to do uh, a two-week uh a two week uh, tour over at uh, Buds in, in San Diego with the, with the or pre Buds with the SEALs. Maybe that was actually more uh, hands on and actually more useful. But uh, it, it really depends upon what the skill is that you're doing an internship in, in terms of uh, whether it's real or you're just taking out space. Sure, exactly. Um, 
Let's see, apprenticeships, we've covered that. Um, in terms of actual degree programs that, that I think are valuable and will continue to have value, um, a big one that I think a lot of people overlook that I think is huge is geology. And we're talking about, you know, petroleum. We're talking about water. We're talking about rare earths. I think a, a degree in geology would be something that would, that would continue to have value no matter what happened. And, um, I think it's, it's also, it's a difficult enough degree program. You've got to have, you've got to get, have good math, you know, high math skills. Um, I, and physics, I think it's something that's rare enough and important enough that if you have that sort of uh, a degree that you are going to, you're going to be in great shape in terms of a career path, no matter what happens from here forward. Um, let's see, where else can we go from here? Oh, obviously medicine. I mean, as long as there are human beings, you know, they, they are going to get sick until our Lord returns in glory and there will be a, a demand for skilled, competent, ethical, uh, ethical doctors. So medicine, surgery, I would especially encourage people to not forget about dentistry. Dentistry is extremely important. I mean, we, we tend to not think about our teeth too much when, as long as we're not in pain and nothing's wrong, but man, you have, you have something go wrong with your teeth and it, it can just, it can just bring your life to a screeching halt. You've got to have competency in in the dental profession, oral surgery, all of those sorts of things, very important. And I think a very good, steady, reliable uh, career path. The other thing I would say about dentistry, um, especially in terms of the contemporary economy, assuming things stay like this as they are, there's a significantly reduced um, malpractice risk and malpractice insurance cost for dentists. Because, it, it, you know, it's very, very, very rare that somebody dies or is just horrifically injured in, in a dentist chair. You know, it's a, it's a pretty, uh, as, as a medical art, it is a, a relatively easygoing type of medical art. And there's not that tremendous risk. Um, on the other hand, uh, people like, um, oh, that, that ambulance chasing shyster, John Edwards, who, who, ran for president a few years about a few years ago just the scum of the earth that guy is he is almost single-handedly through this this malpractice bullshit has almost completely destroyed um the entire notion of a young person becoming an obstetrician gynecologist because the, the malpractice insurance from these from these wretches these lawyers like john edwards um, has just made it almost impossible to be an obstetrician and and to be able to support your family or or make any money off of it um, and pay pay back your your student loans for having to go to med school for 15 years or whatever it is. So um, dentistry is big. Ophthalmology, anything to do with the eyes, um, vision correction, all of that, which kind of segues into just kind of a little bit of a side point. Um, I would think that, you know, now as we're, we're seeing that we're in the early days, the early skirmishes of what's pretty clearly going to be a civil war or already is the early days of a civil war, you should be thinking about your body and, you know, what can I do aside from general fitness, especially if you're you know, a middle-aged or older person, what kind of things do you need to be doing and looking at and thinking about? And the two big ones that are always in the forefront of my mind are dental work. If you need to have any dental work done, do it. Do it now. While, you know, this technology is available, you can get it done easily. It isn't a problem. The other thing, which I think is is as important, if not more important, is um, your eyes. If you, uh, if you wear glasses and you haven't looked into getting some sort of a permanent vision correction, uh, something or other done, do it. Best money I ever spent in my life were the ocular implants that I got 10 years ago. I'm, I am completely, totally blind. My, uh, the, the ocular implants that went into my eyes had a prescription of negative 15.5. I am completely and totally helpless without, without vision correction. Um, and so 10 years ago, and 
I, I'm glad I did it 10 years ago, but now, even now, the, the technology is so much better. I have bioplastic lenses that were inserted into my eye between the iris and my natural lens. So I still have my natural lens. The problem with this is, is that as I age, cataracts definitely run in my family. I'm probably going to develop cataracts. And so ideally, what, what would be just a dream for me is if I could go in and get total lens replacement and the total lens replacement lenses that they have now are absolutely incredible. They are, they're squishy in the sense that they anchor them to the muscles in your eyes. And so you can change your focus. And so if you get these total lens replacements, you never need reading glasses. You're never going to get cataracts and you never need reading glasses because the reason people need reading glasses as they age is because the lens, your natural lens in your eye hardens and it gets less squishy. So when the muscles in your eye engage and you change your focus from far away, which is a more relaxed posture in the lens, and then you focused on something very, very close, the muscles engage and it squeezes the lens. And that's how it refocuses to something that's right in front of you. For example, reading. So as you get older, you can't do that. Um, and then put on top of that, you're getting cataracts. So your vision is turning yellow and becoming cloudy and blah, blah, blah. You can go in there and just lickety split. They pull your lenses out. They put custom made for you, obviously, brand spanking new lenses in your eye. And you're if you live to be 100, you're going to go into the ground with crystal clear lenses and you're still going to have the ability to change to change your focal point without having to wear any sort of corrective lens at all. What a blessing. What a blessing that we live in a day and age where we have that available to us. Think about what life would be like. I mean, for me, it's absolutely terrifying. I would be utterly, totally, completely dependent 24 hours a day, seven days a week on other people. I would be blind. I couldn't live alone, et cetera, et cetera. Certainly couldn't drive a car, not even close. I remember when I was in college once, I was driving home and um, one of my contacts fell out. And as I was driving home and my contact had fallen out and I wore disposables, so it was no big deal. It was just that, let it go. I'll put, I'll pop new ones in when I get home. Um, and I said, well, I'm going to do a little science experiment here. As I'm, as I'm driving home and I was tootling through the campus on K-State, so it was very, very slow driving and I knew exactly where I was and knew the route. I said, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to um, close my good eye and just look out of my uncorrected bad eye and, and count to three and see, and, and just see what that feels like and see, see what happens. So I cover my good eye and I couldn't see the steering wheel. I couldn't see the hood of the car. All I could see was light and blobs of color. That was all I could see. So that really, it, it, it intimidated me tremendously. And I thought, this business of just being one, one loss of your contact lenses away from being utterly, totally helpless, this is no good. And so as soon as I, I had the money and the technology was there, um, I had looked into LASIK, but um, my prescription was so bad that I was not a candidate for LASIK because LASIK is, is removing surface of the cornea to reshape the focal point. And of course, they would have had to have drilled all the way back through the back of my eye in order to refocus mine because my, my prescription was so incredibly strong. Um, so I waited and waited and waited. And they finally said, OK, we've got these bioplastic lenses. Now that's out the window. At this point, I would say to anybody, man, go to an ophthalmologist and say, what, what can we do here? I don't want to worry about cataracts. I don't want to worry about my eyes. I just want to take that problem off the table. And there are some incredible solutions that are available and pay cash for it if you have to, man. I pay, I obviously paid cash for mine. It wasn't even, that wasn't covered by insurance at all, which I had at the time. And it was worth every penny. I think it was in the low five figures, if I remember correctly. And it's some of the best money I ever spent. So again, dental work and lens replacement. Um, in terms of vocations, though, back to vocations, medicine, surgery, dentistry, we've covered that. Um, let's go into um, just general trades to learn that Americans have pretty much just disqualified and don't even think about anymore because most of this stuff has been sent 
overseas. It's been sent into Asia and ma- mass produced crap and all of these things. We need to go get back, especially in the North American economy, to actually producing things again. So um, basically anything that has to do with construction, infrastructure, the engineering thereof, anything like that is going to be incredibly valuable. So subcategories under that would be welding, plumbing, uh, machining, electricity in terms of electrification of of structures and so forth, Uh, masonry, masonry, don't forget about that. Someone needs to know how to work with brick and stone and so forth. Um, Woodworking, all the way from, you know, structural woodworking, all the way to um, normal type furniture production, all the way to something, and this is something that I I suspect is still in an apprentice dynamic. What about people who, for example, know how to make musical instruments? What about someone who knows how to make a violin? That is an incredibly specific, um, valuable trade. Now, it's not, you know, you can't feed anybody a violin, but if we're if we're thinking long term, certainly it, there will be there will be a value and and a goodness a goodness in having people around who can make musical instruments and make make high quality pieces of furniture also out of wood to be highly skilled with woodworking. So something like that. I, now, I was just going to say with, with regard to instruments. Um, yeah, I, I've been buying some audio gear from a company called Sweetwater, and and the la- after the buying the last uh, the the Dynamics processor that I'm using now, uh, they sent with it the catalog for professional audio, and in that they have all of the different kinds of instruments they have. So, for example, an acoustic guitar, you can buy something cheap that was probably made mostly uh, mechanically for about a hundred bucks, but just a plain acoustic guitar, you can easily spend eight nine thousand dollars on something that was handmade and sounds incredible. And just the right. idea of what is the difference between those two guitars, and why do uh, why do performers in Nashville pay ten thousand dollars and pay full time people just to tune and and keep their guitars just right? There is a right. real art to how this is done, and why particular kinds of woods sound different in in a in a from one type to another. And and uh, furniture is the same way. You look at. Um, Wherever you go to to, to buy furniture, or some I, I don't know whatever the big box retailer is. There's one in every major city, and mm-hmm. you can buy you know a, a you know a, a chairs for your for your kitchen table for I don't know twenty thirty bucks a piece. But if you want something handmade, uh, like Amish quality handmade stuff, those are two hundred fifty dollars a chair, and it's something right. where you know it, they'll support somebody who weighs five hundred pounds. You know somebody with a, a typical American diet, and these things will probably be chairs that you can hand down to your kids at some point. Um, exactly. And, that's the and point. That take, I mean, and you, that takes skill to build something like that. Right. You pay you pay two hundred and fifty bucks for a chair like that, but it's made out of solid wood, and that is going to last hundreds of years if it is properly cared for. The twenty dollar chair is made out of particle board. If you're lucky, it might be something even worse than particle board now, and it's literally designed to disintegrate within. 10 to probably 10 to 20 years is the is the maximum expected life of things like that until the particle board literally starts to pulverize and disintegrate and you know the leg is going to fall off it's the thing is going to fall apart so yes there's these things are they have value people are willing to pay for it people will be willing to pay for it after you know whatever happens happens and also if if there is some sort of calamitous thing that happens, well, who's who's going to make particle board or glue board or whatever it's called? That requires an intensive mechanical process when you could just go down, fell a tree, and with hand tools, you could make all of the furniture that you need from, from raw materials that exist in nature that require minimal processing. So it's just, it's just better in every way to, to have people around who have those skill sets. Um, more artisan trades that I have listed, um, metal work, uh, not necessarily in terms of machining, but, you know, making, 
making items, heirloom items out, out of metal. Um, this is again, a very specific trade that, that will continue to pay, um, ceramic certainly. I mean, think of how much ceramic you have in your kitchen. Do, do you know anybody who knows how to make a, a ceramic plate at some point we're, we're going to need to have to be producing this stuff. I, I want to um, go back to machining for a minute. Uh, one of my yeah. brothers-in-law is, is, is a machinist, never went to college. Uh, as far as I know, he may have gone to college briefly uh, for, uh, for, for basketball and then blew out his knee. But in terms of being a machinist, he never did anything other than just vocational training for that. And, uh, he worked on, I want to say it was the B1 project. Um, he, his specialty was he could machine titanium and, wow. uh, there, there were, yep. and, and, and whether it's a defense industry or oil and gas industry, if you are a master machinist, you will never be hungry. That's and right. that, that's something, and, that's something you can learn from another master machinist. Yep. And, and tell me again, super nerd, remind us what is the balance on his student loan? <laughs> Let's see. Uh, zero payments on zero loan, zero. Zero, zero, exactly. Oh man, that's awesome. Um, kind of in the same vein as metalworking and machining is, oh, gunsmithing, gunsmithing, very, very, very important, obviously, an incredible skill set to have. Um, that's that's a, a great skill set that one could have as, as a secondary skill set too. I mean, kind of, I don't want to call it a hobby. I don't want to put it, put it down by calling it a hobby, but it, it's, it's, would be a wonderful thing for people to have, you know, a main skill set and a secondary skill set. Gunsmithing, fantastic. And then the last one I have is, um, which kind of harkens back to what we were talking about earlier, is glass, being able to work with glass. And specifically, a big star that I put next to one of my notes was grinding lenses. How many people in North America today could grind a lens? Now, there's going to be a lot of people who are going to need, still are not going to have their eyes fixed and will need glasses. This is a this is a universal condition among human beings. There will always be people who need glasses. Who knows how to grind a lens? And not just for, hum, not just for human sight, too. Another, another example from, if you're into photography, uh, mass-marketed yep. lenses uh, machined by, or ground, the, 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 the lens elements that are ground down by, by machines, that those will be three, four, five hundred dollars. There are some of the I want to say Hasselblad or Leica lenses that that are hand ground, even still that they, they will hand grind the lens elements. These lenses will cost a hundred thousand dollars or even into the seven figures. Now these are not lenses for cameras; these are are um, for stepper machines for making um, integrated circuits. But still, the highest quality is going to be done by hand. Sure, and also gun sights. You know, um, I always I always went with Zeiss glass on on my long guns, you know, and like as the other brand, there are multiple brands, but that that's a big deal being able to grind lenses. And I, it seems to me that that would be a very cool vocation for somebody. Um, now what else? Textiles, textiles, something that has been completely purged from the North American economy for all intents and purposes is the production of textiles. It's all been sent into Asia basically. And so that would be a very interesting and useful thing for people to be able to do. What are, what were, are we taught from the time we're little bitty kids? What are the three material needs of a human being? Food, clothing, and shelter. Clothing. Okay, we need to be able to produce textiles and have people who know how to do that. And a subcategory under that is leather working. The processing of leather, the creation of leather, and, you know, making things garments, shoes, and, and furniture, other items made out of leather, very important skill set to have. And it will always be in demand as long as there are human beings. And then that leather segues beautifully into, of course, agriculture, food production, animal husbandry, um, and also the processing. Um, when I was at K-State, we were told that the most wildly successful graduates in the Department of Agriculture who were absolutely guaranteed jobs, guaranteed jobs and really well-paying jobs, the day they graduated were the kids who majored in milling science. Milling, the production of, you know, presumably, presumably flour mostly, but then other, other milled grain products as well. 
every one of those kids was placed and was placed into a high paying job the day they graduated with a bachelor's degree. Obviously, bread, okay? You know, I know that it's not trendy anymore for us to be eating carbohydrates and all of that, but look, human beings are always going to have a demand for bread, for pasta, for these grain-based products. Very, very lucrative um, and guaranteed to never never be um, obsolete on any level. Um Obviously, animal husbandry, you know, that's that was my bread and butter. And a subcategory under animal husbandry is processing and slaughter. So it's great if we've got all these people raising cattle and presumably they have bought my Cornerstone Cattle Marketing DVD and know how to arbitrage the cash markets and are extremely effective marketers. That's great. But somebody needs to be able to kill these things and process them. And, um, you know, that science, the, the science of the abattoir is, is absolutely essential. Somebody needs to know how to do that. And it's a very, it's a very specific skill set and it's a valuable skill set to have. The other thing I want to mention is nautical science and super nerd being a, a a veteran of the Navy, you can probably appreciate this nautical science, the building of ships, and also fishery in terms of agriculture. Um, this is something that being a person from Kansas and the dead center of the U.S., I tend to not think about it, even though I eat seafood. I, and I, I love all manner of seafood, both fin fish and, and shellfish. But I tend not to think about fishery as a, as a profession, as a job, as a subset of agriculture. I guess it's called aquaculture. Um, also, there, you know, there's the things like the raising of oysters and farming of salmon, farming of shrimp, and even just natural fi fishing and so forth. These are skill sets that people are going to need. At some point, maybe it won't be possible for us to import all of this seafood coming in from, you know, Southeast Asia. And frankly, do we want do we want to do that anyway? Or should we be focusing again on, on harvesting the Gulf of Mexico and so on and so forth? Well, we're going to need people who have these skill sets, not just of the fishery itself, but also the building production, maintenance, and, and proper use of, of ships and boats. So that's, that's something to look at, too. Um, let's see what's left on my list. Civil engineering. Um, it seems to me that if there is in fact a war and there's going to be big rebuilding projects, there's going to be a lot of urban destruction that someone's going to need to know how to, you know, do civil plats, lay sewer pipe, um, and, and be a civil engineer and be able to rebuild cities and, you know, ha have that skill set, obviously. Um, and then the very, very last thing that I want to mention, which, um, is, perhaps the most important the most important vocation that there is and is what keeps human human life going what what keeps the earth spinning on its axis and and revolving around the sun is of course the vocation to the priesthood or to the monastic life and i i do not want to discount this in any way these are extraordinarily important and so i would recommend um, if a young man is so inclined, looking at a, a traditional seminary, not a novus ordo seminary, I cannot in good conscience recommend that any young man enter a novus ordo seminary. Only a traditional seminary or a traditional monastic community, a traditional monastery. Um, and then even then, there are there are things in this in this world and in these dark days that young men need to be aware of go into these things with their eyes open, have contingency plans for this, that, and the other. But yes, these vocations are extremely important, and also for young ladies in terms of being nuns, contemplative nuns, so on and so forth. The offering of the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, and especially the praying of the office. It's, it's not a coincidence that anti-Pope Bergoglio and his satanic, Freemasonic, sodomite, uh, clack and minions are actively trying to erase the 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 praying of the divine office from the surface of the planet um and we we mustn't let them do that even in um, the case of the religious vocations especially if, if you're not talking about uh diocesan priests or secular priests 
uh, most of the the monasteries and, and the religious orders, they are doing something trade-like anyway. So if you look at sure. the Benedictines, they are clearing land, they are raising cattle, they're working wood. Uh, there beer, are, beer, oh, yeah, if you, <laughs> making if you look beer. At, if you look at, at the history of the monasteries in Europe, these were the the technology incubators, for lack of a better term. I mean, the idea right. of blast furnaces. Talk about um, wh- wh- how how things could have been. Um, I, I forget which book it was. I want to say it was Tom Woods. Um, I'll, I'll, have to, I'll have to figure out what book it was. But he was talking about the the level of technology being developed by the monasteries in England that were cut short by um, Henry VIII closing them all down. That archaeological right. evidence... Uh, showed that that the monasteries in England had come up with a functional blast furnace 400 years before the Industrial Revolution. And that if, right. if Henry VIII had not apostatized and shut down all the monasteries, England would have ruled the world, industrially speaking, 400 years earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they were basically bringing it out of the prototype stage. And uh, in terms of um, animal husbandry, pretty much all the breeds of dogs we have now were, were um, developed by different monasteries. For working conditions, uh, the the dachshund, long uh, the the digging capability, the the short stout legs, these were bred to that condition by mon- by monks. You mentioned sure. beer, um, lots of of uh, viticulture uh, developed by the French monasteries. Champagne discovered by accident, but still, it, it was something that was done by the monks because they need the wine for 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 the mass. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, a lot of practical sciences were developed by the mon- by the monks, and it still goes on today. Whether it's a uh, whether it's making beer, uh, brewing, not brewing, uh, roasting coffee beans or whatever it is they do, they, they all, there are still, even among the traditional uh, monasteries and orders, a lot of practical sciences that are being done right now. I mean, take a look at uh, the monks up in Papastronzi and uh, up at the very tip of northern Scotland. Just the ability to grow and, and, and do anything there in a practical sense is, is a tribute to their, their ingenuity. And they've, they've definitely got a going concern up there. So it, it's... Going into the religious life is not saying, oh, well, I don't need, don't need to worry about all the rest of these uh, trades. No, I mean, for, for my own sons, I, obviously I'm training them to be able to uh, have the skills necessary in the spiritual sense to answer a religious vocation if that ends up being their calling. But on, on the other hand, they've got to be able to have other skills to fall back on, whether it's as in, in, in secular life as a husband and father or even in a monastic life uh, to have the combination of, of both of them. And something you didn't mention, but... Is definitely a skill you can learn without having to go to college is knowing how to run a business. So my, my son, um, I'm not going to name his age, but uh, so for example, at this point in time, one of the things that I can actually do that has nothing to do with computers that he likes to imitate and, and has begun to take over is mowing. Uh, and mm-hmm. he, he's working on, he, he's setting his goal for the next few years, uh, uh, starting a lawn mowing business. So I'm teaching him how to write invoices and teaching him how to do what, what the, the idea of, of uh, invoicing net 30 and, and different payment schemes and things like that. What to do if somebody doesn't pay you? How do, how do you, um, and, and so intentionally I, I will not pay his invoice every once in a while. And, and then, so he has to send me a reminder and just things about mm-hmm. practical things about how to run a, run a business. Um, there's a, a, has been a lot written that in the future, we're going to be seeing something along the lines of that. They call it a gig economy where everyone's working for themselves as their own boss. Well, you've got to understand all the minutia of running a business and whether it's from invoicing, personnel management, um, payroll, and these are the kinds of things that, hey, just take advantage of the fact that kids are learning fast and take advantage of these at the younger age. Uh, introduce them to concepts that, that are going to be useful, whether they end up running their own business or doing something entirely different. This is something very logical that, that uh, is definitely useful to learn. Well, keeping a ledger, I think, is huge, especially for young people, because the older you are, when you have the first exposure to to the ledger and to accounting, the more difficult it is to get your head around. But it seems to me if you start a child keeping a ledger with his own money from his own business, that it will it will just be second nature to him by the time he's 18 years old, whereas other people who are who are trying to learn this when they have you know, this is pretty common now, people going out, like you said, and going freelance, but doing that when they're past 40 and they've never had any experience with accounting or books at all whatsoever until they're into their 40s. It's going to be a lot more difficult and you're not always going to have QuickBooks and even QuickBooks can be difficult to get your head around if you're if you're not used to thinking in terms of a ledger. So yeah, get the kids started on the skill set of just running a business. That's a great point, Super Nerd. 
well, and, and even something as mundane as uh, mowing lawns, this this makes the study of mathematics a whole lot more practical. Why study math? When am I ever going to use this? Okay, look at this lawn across the street with all the curves and everything. Once you get into advanced mathematics and calculus and figuring the area under a curve, that allows you to figure out how long is it going to take to mow that lawn and how much do I need to charge for it. Now, granted, that's a bit of a tongue-in-cheek example, but being able to be practical hands-on with so much of this stuff at an earlier age takes away a lot of this, well, what's the use of this type type of uh, questions that comes up a lot uh, during education. Right, exactly. All right. Well, we've I think we've we've made an excellent list here and had a had a very good discussion. What I would like to end with today is um, an email that I received from a person, which I think and I hope will be edifying to a lot of the people out there. And I'll just um, I'll just go ahead and read it to you. Dear Anne, after our talks about biblical debt, I felt just pathetic about my student loan, which I have been paying in tiny monthly amounts for 11 years. This morning, I phoned up the National Student Loan Service, whatever that's called, and told them to take the rest out of my bank account. That was in honor of the Feast of the Assumption. Apparently, it may take a few days for the wire to go through the bank, um, but that's my present to Our Lady of the Assumption and ultimately to myself. Thanks for the unintended kick in the pants. Signed, X. Um, and I just, so I just wanted to read that to let other people know. It, it's weird. There's almost, it seems to me, a sort of a peer pressure that people tell, tell each other, no, 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 don't pay off your student loan. You know, it, the monthly payment is really, really low. And hey, what, you know, what, what if the government does collapse? Then you, maybe you won't have to repay it at all. Nah, I, I'm sorry. I can't, I can't get on board with that mindset at all. Yeah, let me sell you, um, let me sell you the civil silver lining to the complete breakdown of society. Yeah, exactly. Hey, you won't have to pay back your student loan. How about you just do it? How about you just do it and get it off your back and feel the freedom of now this person is, um, I believe this person is now completely, totally debt free. It's just, it's just awesome. Can you imagine the the feeling and how rare that is, how rare that is in our society today? And how there crazy that is that we look at somebody who is totally debt free and just look and say, oh, wow, maybe someday when I'm in my 70s, I'll be able to achieve that as well. Ugh. This should be the normal state of things. Yes, it should be the normal state of things. Any debt that's taken on should be small and it should be, as we talked about in that in the previous, I think it was the, maybe the first Financial Friday episode. I think it was um, the second one, actually. Maybe the second um, is, you know, you should have a very aggressive plan for getting out of debt. I covered this and I do cover this in the uh, the cattle marketing DVD curriculum, you know. OK, I understand if you're a young person and you need you need some debt to get started in the cattle business, you should have an extraordinarily aggressive plan to get out of it. And there should be little, if any, expansion of your operation until you're completely debt free and you're operating on your own equity. Then once you, you're operating completely on your own equity, your growth curve then will just be parabolic, especially when you compare it to everyone else who just keeps grinding and grinding and grinding with this debt. If once you get into a place where you're operating on your own equity, your expansion, as counterintuitive as, as it seems in this contemporary economy and contemporary culture, it seems completely counterintuitive, but the growth curve is actually enormous when you're operating on your own equity. And so I just wanted to read that and wrap up the podcast today with that very, very edifying email. And something to which we should all aspire if we're not already debt free. And I'm, I'm definitely working on uh, snowballing down my debt at this point. Uh, there's a little bit, a little bit of ways to go on that, and uh, there, there are some demands on my finances that that uh, preclude paying down debts as fast as I'd like to. But you know, that's life. Well, so, hey, that I mean, that's better than most people who are making no effort whatsoever to pay down anything. So indeed, indeed. Mm -hmm. So next Friday, um, well, the next Friday, the next Financial Friday, uh, whether it's next Friday or otherwise, will be another discussion of cryptocurrency. There were some uh, items I didn't quite get to in, in the first cryptocurrency discussion, specifically the crypto side of it. And uh, the, several of the emails that have been coming in uh, since that show uh, could easily be answered with that one. So that's something to look forward to. Uh, okay. the, the email address for feedback is podcast at barnhart.biz. You can send your questions, comment, feedback, 
ideas for trades, you can send that there. Uh, this podcast is produced by Super Nerd Media. If you found some value in this episode and would like to return some value, you can donate at the website supernerdmedia.com. Anne, any final thoughts to ponder for this weekend? Um, just uh, once again, reiterating my eternal gratitude and my donation button completely separate from Super Nerds because of my <clears throat> delicate, delicate personal financial situation vis-a-vis the, uh, the tax regime in uh, the former U.S., is on barnhart.biz. It's a it's a firm called Continue to Give. And there's I'm I'm obviously with everything that's been going on, and we covered this in the last podcast about, you know, um the Palo Alto mafia going after people and PayPal becoming pretty much untenable for a lot of people. I just want to put in another plug for the service that I'm using. It's called Continue to Give. Um, really good people not using, not tied to PayPal. And so my button is there and they've actually upgraded recently to where now it's very easy to set up a, a recurring donation profile that goes on ad infinitum. And so um, a lot of people were asking about that and that that would be absolutely spectacular if you appreciate these podcasts. I <laughs> super nerd. I think super nerd was telling me one time about he gets um, notifications from one of the is it one of the podcast hosting services and they say if every person who listens to your podcast were to donate $1 a month, you would make, you know, blah, blah, blah dollars a month. And it's, it's, it's an intimidating amount of money. Um, and I, I fully admit that I would like to get out ahead on rent as much as I possibly can. And so, um, super nerd and I both, um, producing what are, we're, we're getting pretty close to three hours of audio content per week now, aren't we? Uh, yeah, we're just crossed the hour mark on this recording, and uh, we started out with a goal of 45 minutes to an hour, and it seems to be getting close to an hour and 20 minutes with each episode. Hour so. 20, yeah, yeah. So producing, you know, two and a half to three hours of content pretty reliably now per week. If if you would like to do a little a little tiny podcast subscription um, to one or both of us, to myself and, and or Super Nerd, that would be, oh, eternally grateful. And of course, Benefactor Masses. Oh, oh, and uh, so right now we have Benefactor Masses Mondays, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays. I just got an email from another priest who wants to get on board somehow. And so I'm going back and forth, um, either add one more Benefactor Mass per week, you know, add like a Thursday now, or the other uh, goal that we've been talking about for for quite some time now is to have um, a requiem said every week for all of the human beings who died in the previous week so that you know people who die who are dying in this in this world in these dark days some you know there will be at least one requiem mass said for them um so i think i'm going to um send him an email and see if he could commit to saying one requiem per week and it, and he would you know move the days around as needed but um, that was really exciting when I saw that email come in. So things things are happening and, and things are moving. And be assured of my prayers every day, uh, mass, rosary, adoration, benediction, um, almost every day I'm able to go to that. I'm so blessed. I'm so blessed. And uh, prayers for all of my benefactors, for the entire audience, supporters, and all of my enemies as well, every single day before the Blessed Sacrament Exposed. And I, I can't thank everyone enough for their continued munificence. And I mean, I, I just, I just sometimes pinch myself. I can't hardly believe, um, you know, when, when our Lord said, sell, sell everything you own and follow me and I will give you, I'll give it all back to you a hundred times over. Um, obviously the, the size of the estate is not what he's talking about. I think what he's talking about is the quality of life. Um, and you know, happy memories, experiences, so on and so forth. And I, I can just testify to that. I've, I've, I gave up everything in Colorado, got rid of everything. And he's given me back a hundredfold, more than a hundredfold, everything that I've given up. And I, I can't, and that is all you all are participants in that, obviously. And I can't thank you enough and just be assured of my prayers. Awesome. And one other request, uh, this is going to sound really mundane after you, after saying that, but uh, one other request for, for folks who know about this, um, 
I'm we're looking for ideas for backup web hosting in case we need to move the hosting for this offshore out as in mm-hmm. out of the United States. And yeah. obviously I know how to use the Googles and the Bings and all that stuff, but uh, if you are aware of or have experience with offshore web hosting, uh, send an email to me, please, uh, at uh, info at supernerdmedia, or is it email? Whatever. E- email at supernerdmedia.com. Um, let me know about that. I'm uh, researching this in case this is something we have to act on and, and move the website out of the United States because um, we might be deemed as uh, needed to be shut down at some point. So just wanted, exactly. just wanted to get that request out there. Uh, if anybody has any ideas or suggestions, please, please pass that along. Well, and I'm so glad you brought that up because I was talking to someone else this week, um, that it seems to me looking at all of this unfold with what's happening to the remnant and the, the fact that we are directly under threat. What are, what are some friendly countries out there that it seems to me uh, that a business model is opening up that would be boy, I, I would have to think it would be a, bi- a billion dollar business model just overnight. Poland, Hungary, um, nations like that who are not who are not just completely subservient to this Freemasonic, anti-Pope Bergoglio, um, Soros, social justice warrior agenda. Um, these these nations in particular, it seems to me, Hungary and Poland. If and we have international listeners. There's people all over the world who listen to this podcast. If if I were a young person uh, in Poland or in Hungary, I would be looking very, very hard at setting up a web hosting company and m- marketing it specifically to Christians under oppression, a guarantee that there would not be any censorship because, hey, Super Nerd and I, we can, we can Google and we can pull up websites that guarantee no censor- censorship but you read between the lines on these on these businesses, and what you realize is that you're going to be doing business with someone who's who's trafficking in porn or worse. Okay, or it's, it's subject I, to the laws of of the, of the state of Malaysia. In which case, if we're talking about Musloids, guess what? You just got your account closed. That's right. That's right. So it seems to me that this is a this is a an incredibly potentially lucrative and morally praiseworthy uh, business model that is just opening up in front of somebody um, in, in a nation state that is that is not afraid to be to be Christian. And right now, what that looks like to me is Poland and Hungary. So if there are any listeners out there, and I, I, I'm almost certain that I have um, Polish listeners, um, boy, I, I <laughs> open that up, get a website up, Marketed aggressively to American Christian conservatives, and say, "Here we are your offshore web hosting alternative. No censorship for your Christian content, and we are not doing business with pornographers." I think you would have. I think you would have an enormous influx of business almost immediately. I would be calling you and seeing and, and finding out yep. what the rates are. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. Yep. And you'd have and you'd have people wanting to help you, like people like SuperNerd giving you any sort of technical assistance or any consulting. I think I think it would just be I think the the red carpet is just being rolled out on this business model. Indeed. Uh, until next week, I am SuperNerd. And I am Anne. God bless, guys. Thanks much. <laughs>